0: Welcome, everyone, to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Josh Sellers, a professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law.
1: And I'm Henry Thompson, a professor of political science at Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies. This is an interview show in which we talk with scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil dialogue, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly we're two friends
0: who agree on many things disagree on many things yet share a commitment to exploring difficult issues in the spirit of improving liberal education and public discourse thank you for listening
1: welcome to keeping it civil this episode josh and i speak to glenn lowry professor of economics at brown university we discuss his research on how racial inequality persists in society we also talked to him about his life and his path to becoming an academic economist. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Glenn, good morning. This is Henry Thompson. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you're welcome, Henry. Thank you.
0: I wanted to start with a profile of you from 2002. This was in the New York Times Magazine. Adam Schatz, I want to quote him here, describing you. He says, His career as a public intellectual has been a long and occasionally reckless journey of self-discovery and reinvention, a dizzying series of political transformations and personal crises that have left him with more ex-friends than friends. So I wondered first, Glenn, was that true in 2002? And is that true in 2021?
2: I think it was more true in 2002. I think I was feeling the loss of connections with some people right of center um, whom I had uh, offended or disappointed or betrayed or broken with. Abigail Thernstrom, the late Abigail Thernstrom, and Stephen Thernstrom, the distinguished Harvard historian, were dear friends of mine. And in my shift from being a neoconservative to being more of a liberal centrist on race questions that occurred in the 90s in that period. I lost uh, their friendship. I resigned publicly from the American Enterprise Institute, where people like the political scientist James Q. Wilson and the social analyst Charles Murray and others, uh, Christopher DeMuth, who was the president of the AEI. These were people I was relatively close to, but I broke with them. So I can see why Adam Schatz might have put it that way
0: yeah hmm Have those relationships been repaired?
2: Well, Jim is dead, James Q. Wilson, and I regret now that when he died, and let me see, that would have been about gosh, uh, 2013, 2014. I don't remember exactly. I wrote an intellectual obituary which lashed into him. I, I basically, for Boston Review, the you know liberal left of center uh, magazine, Josh Cohen. The, the p- editor, publisher there. <laughs> yeah, I, I said he died with blood on his hands because I was really, really angry with him, the godfather of the uh, rise in incarceration that just, you know, transformed criminal justice policy in the country. I mean, from 500,000 under lock and key in 1980, just a few years after Wilson's book, Thinking About Crime, appeared. And, and Jim was a hawk. This is the very distinguished Harvard uh, political scientist who you know, moved out to the West Coast and in retirement he was at Pepperdine when he died, I think. And and I was I was uh, the Glenn Lowry of race incarceration and American values. This was my small book that was published in two thousand and eight, based on these lectures I gave at Stanford. And I I was just inf- furious about the what I thought was the callousness and kind of punitive uh, rage that the country had gotten itself into when it had created this circumstance of 2.25 million under lock and key at the height of this thing. And I was invited by these lefties at the Boston Review to comment on the career of James Q. Wilson, and I I wrote, you know, it was only 500 words or so, but it was pretty withering. In a way, I regret it. I think, you know, I was betraying a a relationship that I could have handled with greater subtlety. I mean, I was sanctimonious, you know, I was self-righteous. I was, yeah, high dudgeon, you know, so, and I felt justified in doing it. So, yeah, uh, that is a feature of my my story of, uh, you know, not being settled in my own thinking about important political issues and losing friends. Shelby Steele, the writer he and I were in the, uh, uh, nineties where, you know, buddies. So we, we founded an organization called center for new black leadership that had a, had a run. We raised some money and, you know, sort of propounded some right of center political opinions, uh, to try to influence the discussion about the race questions. And I changed my mind about affirmative action, you know, and rather than thinking it was, you know, this, uh, the worst thing in the world. I, I came to f- say to make my peace with it. To say, you know, you can do it if you do it right. Shelby was uh, was very disappointed. Justice Thomas <laughs> actually kind of kicked me out of his office. at the one time that I I met with the justice in his chambers at the Supreme Court. This would have been like 1996. It was the California ballot Proposition 209 was on the ballot in 1996, banning racial affirmative action in the state. And I was reluctant to get publicly involved in the conservative movement to enact 209, which was successfully enacted. I was equivocating on that. And uh, in the conversation with the justice, he pretty much said, look, I mean, this is the time to get this done. And you're losing your nerve at exactly the moment when it's uh, absolutely essential to hold firm.
0: What's your sense, Glenn, of economics as an academic field—the extent to which formal economics can speak to some of these important social issues? It's, you know, I'm not an economist, but I, it seems like neoclassical economics is coming under some scrutiny. Maybe it always has been, uh, but there seems to be a lot of discussion on, among academic economists about the role of economics in in kind of addressing these social issues.
2: Uh, neoclassical economics, I mean, I, I don't know compared to what. I mean, to me, that's just economics. I mean, I you know, I don't think that the rise of behavioral economics and of the import of some psychological insight into the study of economic behavior, I don't feel like that's a, I feel like that's an enrichment, not a refutation of neoclassical economics. So I guess I'd, I'd ask for what one means by— Neoclassical belief in markets, uh, arbitrage—you uh, know the idea that uh, firms are seeking to uh, maximize their their returns, opportunity cost—you uh, know uh, implicit uh, market uh, insights that I associate with people like the late Gary Becker. Other, uh, I, I mean, I don't think that that's been refuted by by anything. I, you know, neoliberalism. I mean, if you wanted to go. Anyway, let me stop talking and, and allow you to to ask me what you want to know because I'm. I think economics is just fine. I think economics is the queen of the social sciences. I think economics is by far disciplinary outlook for the investigation of of, of social processes, and it's not only restricted to buying and selling and prices and so on. I mean, I think no one predicted the financial collapse. No, that's true. But I think that if you wanted to analyze what went wrong with the credit default swaps and all of that, if you want to understand how bond rating agencies or banking regulation, uh, you know, uh, Glass-Steagall and all that, or any, if, if, if you wanted to say anything sensible about what uh, the role of government is in reacting to the consequences of financial panic or whatever, you'd be right back to economics. I don't think you have any other intellectual toolkit for investigating these issues. Macroeconomics can't uh, necessarily predict the exact pattern of the business cycle. But again, I don't know of any intellectual framework other than uh, the highly contentious uh, various competing schools of thought within macroeconomics. Uh, I don't know of any other framework for thinking about inflation, un- unemployment, monetary policy, uh, so on, than the one that we've inherited within the profession of economics.
1: Have you been influenced at all by the work in Applied Micro that looks at things like structures of slavery in other countries and their long-run consequences for, for development. That's something I wanted to ask you is whether, for example, the work of Duran Azimoglu and James Robinson, they talk about extractive institutions, which obviously includes slavery, having a very pernicious long-run effect on development around the world. There's work by people like uh, Nathan Nunn who looked at the structures of slavery in the mining areas of Latin America and how they had very pernicious long-run consequences. Has any of that work affected how you You view the legacy of slavery and racial inequality in the United States? Probably not as much as it should have done. I did read carefully, and I've actually
2: taught uh, "Why Nations Fail." This is Asimov and Robinson's big book, extractive institutions, uh, etc. And I read with profit, and it has influenced my thinking, to be sure but I am, I'm not in command of all of what has been produced. I'm aware of some of this exciting work, but not to the extent that I could comment uh, intelligently in response to your question about the legacies of slavery, the long-term effects of these uh, extractive, you know, exploitative uh, processes. I mean, I, I, say more, I, I want to say here, uh, w- what do you think is the relevant implication in contemporary time this is about the Im- implications of American slavery for the social and economic position of African Americans in the
1: 21st century. Well, I think there are very interesting discussions to be had, and particularly relating to some of your work and your theories, because most of the work, at least my interpretation, is that the work on the institutions of slavery persisting into extractive, exploitative political institutions that have long-run effects seems to be about places where slavery existed, right? So you have certain areas where slavery occurred under colonial regimes, and they continue to be poor to this day. But your theory, social capital theory, seems to be more linked to individuals, right? So reading your book about the anatomy of racial inequality, you talk about racial markings that detected or perceived by people around those people with those racial markings. Those are things that are linked to individuals, not to places. And so I was wondering, uh, and obviously, given the history of racial inequality in the United States and migration, in a way, that's a, these two theories can speak to one another. That there can be institutions that persist in, in certain places, but as people move, those institutions can kind of follow them. Would be an implication of your theory for me that those institutions can sort of follow individuals to even completely different geographic spaces. Well, this is interesting, and I'm going to have to confess a relative
2: degree of ignorance. Maybe it's something I should know more about, but I don't.
0: Your book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, that was published in 2002, uh, but there's a new. Edition that came out this past year, 2021, uh, with a new preface. What's interesting about the preface is that you disavow at least some (laughs) portion of the book. Uh, And so, uh, how would you explain to listeners what they should take from the book and what the the kind of ideological shift is about? Because I read the book, and I the preface makes clear that you know, you had shifted back to the left, I guess, at the time that you wrote this. You've since shifted, I think, back to the right. as the data changed? What, what explains the shifting? Is it been informed by research you've read, or is there another explanation?
2: You know, it's a less formally rigorous, much more sociological and historical way of thinking about race. And I, I wanted to put that stigma concern alongside the stereotype concern. And I uh, explore the interactions between them, which I do in the book. And uh yeah, you know, yeah, I stand by all of that. I, I think it was, you know, as useful as it was, the book has been reasonably well received over the years. We don't have to emphasize the race to the ex- now if there's explicit evidence of racial motivation, that's one thing. But very often there is not, as this is in the case of uh Derek Chauvin in uh, Minneapolis. No one is established that his motivation in killing George Floyd, for which he's been convicted of homicide, has established that uh, the motivation was was racial in nature. We, we don't have to racialize our discussion of police violence against citizens. And I would rather that we didn't. And the one reason I'd rather that we didn't is because when we racialize that discussion, we invite a reaction that's also racialized. We invite a perception of criminal violence in the country to be played out in racial terms. A man drives a vehicle into a parade, a Christmas parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and he kills six people, including some of the members of the dancing grannies social club or whatever, the grandmothers run over by a man driving his vehicle into a parade. That's a horrible thing. As it happens, the parade was practically all white because Waukesha, Wisconsin is practically all right. And the man driving the vehicle was black. Was that a racial incident? Well, I'd rather that we not have that be our first reflex. I'd rather that a killing of a Columbia undergraduate who happens to be in uh, Morningside Heights Taking a walk in the park by a 13 year old or 15 year old who wants their mobile phone or their laptop or in their backpack and stabs them to death, or an immigrant kid at the University of Chicago walking around in Hyde Park getting shot in the chest for his backpack. I'd rather not have our processing of those events turn on the race of the persons killed and the race of the person doing the killing. And it seems to me that that's what we invite when we unreflectively frame the issues in racial terms. So that's, that's one thing I want to move away from that. I've also soured on affirmative action in academia uh, to a certain extent because whereas you can make the argument that as a transitional intervention, affirmative action is a necessary complement to other things that one might be doing to try to promote racial justice in its broadest terms. Relying permanently on affirmative action, incorporating it into the permanent framework for how it is that you assure the presence of African Americans in adequate numbers within these elite venues, say, exam-based admissions to a selective uh, high school, public high schools in uh, New York City, or the selection of students for uh, rarefied technical uh, programs of study at uh, major universities around the country. If you end up in a position where you're permanently relying on affirmative action in order to secure the presence of African Americans in adequate numbers, that doesn't lead to equality. If we think the solution to the problem is affirmative action, we're making a mistake and we're, we're building ourselves into a future in which there's patronization of Blacks and kind of dependence upon this narrative that, well, they're not performing well because of history because of slavery, I, I, you know, I, I'm in my old age unwilling to rest on that kind of fragile foundation for equality of dignity and respect across racial lines.
0: There's a lot to unpack there. So let me uh, just say the the racial stigma chapter, to go back to the book, and I think this underlies much of what you just said, I found that chapter to be compelling. But it seems very hard, I think, to square what's in that chapter with much of what you just said. Because I think the theory of racial stigma that you outline in that chapter would explain some of the outcomes and the phenomena that you just described. So is there a way to kind of square that circle, or is the theory of racial stigma also something that you no longer find as compelling as you did in 2002?
2: I'll try to square the circle because you just take everything I just said about affirmative action, one way of responding is to say, let's invest in the development of the Black population from K-12, through 12, even from pre-school and various kinds of interventions, tutoring, uh, helping parents, et cetera, so that the a pipeline feeding into the selection of these more exclusive venues has more African Americans in it. Recently, I've been using this kind of language. I say you have the bias narrative in which you basically indict institutional racism as the source of the underrepresentation. And you you say that the selective colleges, you get you get rid of the exam. We don't use the SAT anymore. You Go to a different selection method for the exam schools in a say New York City, Bronx High School of Science or Brooklyn Tech or whatever, because you think these things are biased against the underrepresented population population of color blacks there's not enough blacks. the exam is biased. you get rid really of gifted and talented because you think that the whole meritocratic framework is implicitly racist. You put your chips on the bias narrative. To which I want to contrast that with the development narrative in which you say, for reasons historical and sociological, the processes such as they are now that abet the acquisition of certain kinds of skills that allow for the development of the potential of a a person to realize that potential, those processes are working to the disadvantage of uh, African-Americans are youngsters are not realizing their full human potential. And the reasons for that could be historical racism, to be sure, that could be part of it, but that needn't be the entire account that you give. It might be that the structure of families in uh, African-American communities with high rates of out-of-wedlock birth and single-parent families is part of what is going on in inhibiting the development of the population. I mean, we could, and these things are not mutually exclusive and they're not the only things that one might think of, but you focus on the development and you put some onus of responsibility on the population itself. I mean, everything is not that the structure is biased against them. Some of the stuff is that for reasons that we could adduce including historical racism and exclusion, the ongoing patterns of behavior in the population are themselves problematic. So that is a different way of looking at the problem, but it doesn't preclude the kind of concerns that I was identifying in the analysis of racial stigma. I mean, for example, I might think that family structure matters. You know, I might think that whether there's two parents or one parent in the home is actually causally substantively connected to the processes of development. I I do think that actually Glenn Lowry in 2021-22 does think that family structure is a part of the explanation for uh, group disparities in economic outcomes. Family structure is not exogenous. It is a consequence of the way in which people have been affected by history. And, uh, uh, you know, Nathan Nunn or somebody else might have something to say about how a variation across uh, locations in exposure to certain kinds of institutions, extractive institutions in the past, like slavery, is associated with present day structures of association and family behavior such as I am identifying now and saying I think it matters for contemporary social outcomes. So I I don't preclude a sophisticated historical account, but I'm living in the year 2022 and whatever the historical processes may have been that led to the situation that we observe right now. To get a better outcome now, I've got to acknowledge and deal with The fact that I have these uh, very substantial differences in patterns of uh, behavior. These are men and women who engage in a reproductive activity, who regenerate the population from generation to generation, and structures of association between these men and women vis-a-vis their progeny that have material consequences for the cognitive and behavioral development of these young people to take the position that because there exists white racism or there has existed uh, anti-black racism going way back, therefore, there's no responsibility resting with the population in question for how it is that they conduct themselves, reproduce themselves and raise their children is deeply offensive to me, both uh, morally and politically, because it's wrong. and, And therefore, it will, that is this posture, this posture that There is no responsibility residing with a community where 70% of the children are living with a woman without the father present. And that has no responsibility for them, for the way in which they're living, since they are descendants of people who had been enslaved 150 years ago. It's to treat them like uh, they're, like they're not responsible moral agents, and it's also to be locking ourselves into uh, a situation that's likely to persist for some time.
0: These debates, as you know, have been going on, you know, for 40 years, these kind of culture of poverty explanations that you're outlining, and I'm just wondering, where, where's the evidence for that? I mean, I know Orlando Patterson, you mentioned, has pushed this view as well. Of course, this has been a controversial view politically, but... It's not, it doesn't require going back to slavery to explain some, again, these contemporary phenomena. We have all sorts of evidence, right? This is what I'm getting at. Eva, it's policing context, affirmative action context. Uh, you're talking about out-of-wedlock births. We have reams of social science data, right, connecting things like racial stratification, neighborhood segregation, wealth inequality. We have it's data connecting that with these outcomes. Now, you could take issue with the data, but it seems to me it's not entirely conclusive, but it's substantial. And so I'm wondering what evidence there exists to justify the kind of culture of poverty, I would say, victim-blaming arguments. And again, we know th- these arguments, you were part of these arguments 40 years ago. So these these aren't new. But I'm just trying, again, I'm trying to figure out where is the evidence for the culture of poverty position? Well,
2: I never used the word culture of poverty, although I did say culture. I, I, I mean... <laughs> I, I'm not sure exactly what you're getting at. I, I'll, I'll try again. Seven in ten kids born to a woman without a husband. Now we can call that whatever we want to call it. The claim that that is related to poor uh, social achievement has not been refuted by evidence, as far as I know. Um. So I.
0: I <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, Angus Deaton earlier. I mean, Deaton's yes. recent work with and and cases. Is- Sadly, documenting similar trends in non, non-black communities, right? So, I mean, and that, that's, he connects that with declining wages and, uh, you know, changes in the labor market and obviously the opi- opioid epidemic and other things. So, you know, so, so what about so that? Culture, so,
2: culture is endogenous. I mean, deaths of despair. This is, I, I, yeah. I understand, yeah. you know, opioid addiction and things of this kind. Culture is endogenous. That's okay. It's still these are still patterns of behavior in, in, in normative uh, environments in, in which, I mean, violence, homicide, the uh, gangs, uh, these things are real things that have consequences for social outcomes, don't they? Th- that, that I might be able to account for them by reference to uh, economic and material dynamics doesn't refute the claim that uh, these uh, patterns of behavior ha- are, ha- have material consequences. So I'm, I'm not sure w- what work is calling the reference to behavior culture of poverty doing. Uh, what, what's been refuted in the important social investigations where people do like the uh, case, link uh, or uh, uh, William Julius Wilson uh, and, and his school of thought link these um, behavioral dynamics to economic, uh, larger economic forces. What, what uh, I mean, it's like you, you, you say blaming the victim. No one's being blamed. If, if I say I have a community in which people don't marry and in which children are raised largely by women alone, and that's bad for the children, Uh, I'm not absolving society of a responsibility to be engaged with the remedying of these problems. I'm simply trying to be realistic about what's actually happening. So I'm I'm a a bit confused here. I I don't understand why a reference to the fact that... So, I mean, let's look at it on the other side. Let's look at uh, groups that are, are particularly successful. Let's talk about the Jews. Let's talk about Chinese uh, immigrants uh, to the United States. Are there no patterns of norm, belief, behavioral practice, values, uh, structures of uh, social organization, characteristic of these populations that are relevant to their success? It would seem to me to defy common sense to suggest that, you know, how many hours people spend studying what they think the uh, peer groups that they affiliate with will affirm as desirable ways of conducting oneself, how much they care about satisfying their parents, what expectations are are placed on, uh, that these things have nothing to do with their outcomes. Of course, these things are related to their outcomes and that an economic historian might tell me, well, the reason that the Jews are the people of the book is because, et cetera, doesn't in any way negate the claim that uh, Jews are overrepresented amongst Nobel laureates in economics or lots of other venues of human performance because they've spent their time differently on the average and allowed their uh, human potential to be realized with the excellent performance that they exhibit in this or that line of inquiry. So it's only something like that that I'm saying about the losers. I'm saying of the losers in the lottery of uh, social outcome that they have to some degree, behaved in ways that uh, are uh, directly causally related to their their poor outcomes. And they can behave differently. I mean, this is the other thing that I wanna say. I mean, if if you preclude a cultural argument, you also preclude a certain kind of uh, movement for reform uh, or transformation of the underlying uh, patterns of behavior and normative commitments that are implicated in in the lack of success. And I, I think that sells people short.
0: I, I, I agree that the inquiry is worthwhile. So I, I want to be clear about that. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I'm, Glenn, I'm looking at your book again, and you have a passage here about uh, this comparative narrative comparing African Americans to other immigrant groups. And you, this is you saying the view that structural reform is not needed because we can look at other immigrant groups as examples, you call that sophomoric social ethics and naive social science. So what has changed? That's what I'm asking. What, what has changed your... I mean, people change their views all the time, but that, that's what you said about this comparative narrative then, and I'm just wondering what, what evidence has changed your mind now.
2: Yeah, and I guess I'm going to have to say that it's not so much the evidence that has changed as that my value commitments have shifted and I'm making different kind of arguments Now, it's true. I did say in uh, 2000 in that lecture that I don't like the idea of looking at, you know, the success of immigrants and saying, you know, that blacks can do better. Look at how these other people are doing. And I'm not quite saying that now. I didn't really say, you know, be like the Chinese. What I said was that the success of some populations reflects the importance of the kinds of cultural uh, factors that I want to identify as implicated in the lack of success of the African American relative, lack of success of the African American part. I was talking specifically about family structure, but the point could be generalized. Okay, I, I, I don't know the answer to your question. You ask me what has changed. I mean, and yes, my politics have definitely changed and I wanna put some onus on, on the folk who are in this situation. And so as you say that's blaming the victim, I, I don't know if it's blaming the victim if I, uh, if I um, insist on uh, the victim being responsible,
1: victim, quote unquote, victim being responsible for their own lives. And I think we're pretty much out of time here. Good luck with uh, with the book and have a great holiday and season. And forthcoming memoir. And your forthcoming memoir, which we've heard a lot about.
2: Well, you guys uh, challenged me without any question. And so I, I hope it turns out that I didn't look like a self-contradictory. Uh, <laughs> but it is what it is. And
0: uh, you're welcome. Thank you very Thank you. much. Thank you.